Galatians 3. We're going to pray in just a moment, but just to give you a, a reminder, as you make your way to chapter 3, we're in verses 15 through, 20, through 29. We're going to be wrapping up this section. We're covering it in several weeks. Right, And we, we're going to set out to read the final portion of chapter 3 this morning, and in particular, this portion of Paul's argument, which you know, and we know, that he's defending the gospel of grace in verses 15 through 29. Okay, Now, while we read this, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to be mindful of the ancient Near East context of which this was written in, right? In the ancient world... And in the days of this letter, specifically, you have to plug away in your mind this tradition, this cultural dynamic in place. In that time, the firstborn son had a number of privileges that his siblings simply did not have. Okay, Number one, he was entitled to an actual a double portion of his family's inheritance, which was a big deal. Not only that, being entitled to a double portion of his family's inheritance, in addition to that financial blessing, the firstborn son was also considered the head of the family, the leader among his siblings, right? If there were any female offspring, they usually did not receive an inheritance. Only male heirs could inherit the family wealth. Now, in many ways, Paul's taking these traditions, these cultural dynamics, And he turns them upside down in this way. The logic is, is because Christ, right, Colossians 1.16, is the firstborn over all creation, then those who are united to him become heirs to tremendous, tremendous blessings. Let me say that again. Because Christ is the firstborn over all creation, Colossians 1.16, to be united to Christ is to become heir, an heir of tremendous blessings. And just to ensure that we're overwhelmed by this blessing of God, let's pray this morning as we dive in. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the sweetness that we will enjoy and partake in even in advance. Your word, when it is open, is always profitable. It always enriches us. You use it to build up our faith. You remind us anew of your grace, its magnitude, the depths in which it is conveyed to us. Lord, we are only but mindful and cognizant of just a a small measure of ways, and yet there are so many more which you lavish your people with grace and kindness. And so we want to give you thanks. We ask that our worship of you today would be primed and positioned in such a way that you you receive all that you rightfully deserve. We want to now even bask in what it is to be an heir of you. What does that mean, those blessings that you impart to your sons? Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding uh, that you would take any vestiges in our heart which are remain unaffected or cold or apathetic to your goodness, providence, and power in our life. Would you rid us of that apathy, make us sensitive to these things, that we might be better worshipers of you this morning. We pray for the youth group and for Brandon as he opens your word. We thank you for those young people. We ask that you continue to shape them into young men and women whose hearts belong to you. We ask that they would all be in Christ, that you would save them. We also ask that you would save them from the heartache and hardship of sin. The way of wickedness is hard. We pray that they would learn that early on and that you would impart in them a desire to want to proceed forward with wisdom and not foolishness. Lord, that is a work that you will bring about in their lives. And so we ask that you would do so in fullest measure for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you have an outline, and with that kind of ancient Near East context over the passage, your main idea, it's the same as it's been several weeks, right? Scripture tells a story, and you can repeat it now, of a God who does what? Keeps his promises, right? Scripture tells a story of a God who keeps his promises. Chapter 3 is at the heart of Paul's defense of the gospel of grace. He's already gone to great lengths to show that salvation and the gospel do not come through law, 
but rather that God saves. God justifies sinners. He makes us right with himself, you know this, by his grace through faith in Christ alone. Let's review what we've covered thus far so we can get a running start to our text today, right? Up to Galatians 3.22, Paul has shown the Galatians three main things, okay? All statements, mind you, that were intended to help them understand and thus help us the relationship between law and promise. Statement number one was this, the law cannot change the promise, The law cannot change the promise. Verse 15 through 18, we'll read it now. This is the New American Standard Translation. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by by means of a promise. Put that in a nutshell. God made, and we're grateful for this, God made an irrevocable, unchanging covenantal promise directly to Abraham that what? Through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? Genesis 12, 3, right? A promise that was ultimately fulfilled in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. The blessing of salvation, eternal life was scheduled to come through this seed, through Christ himself, and the law even though it came later, did not, very important, did not and could not nullify or change this promise. Second statement that helps us understand the relationship between law and promise is that the law is not greater than the promise. Verses 19 through 20. Why the law then? That'll love these natural, organic human questions. Why the law then? It was added, Paul says, because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Put this summation, right, of the last couple weeks. The law is not greater than the promise because, yes, while it came later, the law was temporary and came to the people of God by way of a mediator. You'll remember it. It came indirectly to Israel through who? Through angels, the mediation of angels, and the prophet Moses himself. When you think about the promise given to Abraham, that was radically, significantly, and powerfully different, wasn't it? What about the promise to Abraham of how God would bless the world through him by justifying sinners through his descendant Jesus. That was not given in the same way the law was, was it? It was given to Abraham personally. There was no need of a mediator because God was the one doing the promising. Not only that, furthermore, the keeping of that promise was not dependent upon Abraham. It was dependent upon one person, right? And who was that? God himself, the one doing the promising. That promise was reliant and dependent upon God. So Paul's chief point in contrasting these two covenants was to show that if salvation came through obedience to the law, right, as the Judaizers were espousing, then it would, in effect, it would nullify. It would void the promise that God made to Abraham. And yet what we know in God's word, that God was the one doing the promising, and that promise was eternal, It was irrevocable. It was everlasting. The law, even though it came centuries later, could not change this fact. And again, of which we are thankful. The third statement that helps us understand the relationship between promise and law, again, this is all review, is that the law is not contrary to the promise. Verses 21 through 22. Another natural human question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God. 
Paul says, may it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, the Galatians understandably asked a very natural question, right? We already saw in verse 19, well, Paul, why did, why did God give the law in the first place? And the follow-up question is, well, then does that mean that the law, is God contradicting himself with giving the law 430 years later? What we saw last Sunday is Paul wonderfully made clear, clear why God gave the law and why it was not contrary to the promise. We saw that number, verse 21, the law was not given to provide life, right? And secondly, the law was given to reveal sin. The law was given to reveal sin in verse 22. The law was never intended to give life. Rather, it was added, as Paul says, because of transgressions, right? It was added to reveal sin. It was added to increase their awareness of their guilt so that those two covenants, law and promise, weren't opposed to each other. They weren't contrary to each other. They worked in tandem together. They were complementing each other. The Mosaic covenant of law was intended to do what? to drive Israel to one person, right? And that was to Christ, the one in whom the covenant promise to Abraham is fulfilled. This way salvation was and has always been through the promise. And the law is not contrary to that. This leads us to the third reason why the law is not contrary to the promise, which we're picking up this week. That's a long way around to our new fresh text in front of us. The law was given to prepare the way for Christ. The law was given to prepare the way for Christ. It's helpful to get that running start because there is a, there's a momentum that's been building across chapter three, isn't it? I was talking to someone the other day. This is, you know, there's, there's this erroneous um, idea being propagated within the church of, of legalism and injecting law in places and in ways that it shouldn't. And it was Acts 15.1, it was disturbing the faith of many. And Paul is just taking his apostolic arrows and he's just shooting argument after argument, scripture after scripture, basis after basis to dismantle their erroneous ideas, their anti-gospel tenets. Martin Luther said the law is a minister that prepares the way unto grace. And we see that abundantly in verses 23 through 26. If you read with me this morning. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, Paul communicates a number of things in those four verses, and he does so masterfully. (laughs) Number one, he says a great deal about our former relationship to the law, which is also really just a reiteration of what he's mentioned earlier. You'll note in this passage, again, he utilizes this language of slavery right? To characterize our relationship to the law. Look at verse 23. But before faith came, we were, here it is, kept in custody under the law and being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. It's radically different with what the Judaizers were holding out to the Galatian believers, right? The Judaizers thought that circumcision would bring them freedom from Satan, sin, and death. Paul points out that it actually brings quite the opposite. He says, until faith came, which is defined in the next verse as the advent of Christ, until Christ came, that everything, everything was held captive, imprisoned, kept in custody under the law. We can even go back to our text last Sunday. Look at verse 22. Remember what he said just one verse earlier. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So then the law kept people in bondage. The whole theme of this book is freedom. 
And they were holding out the law as a pathway to freedom. This is what Paul is contending against. The law was accusing Israel of its sinfulness. It was showing them their inability to keep the law. And as as God was doing that and showing Israel their sinfulness, as well as their inability to keep the law, was God doing this without any view of a remedy to come? Absolutely not, right? There's always, he's always had a mind on the remedy of their inability to keep the law. He knew they would be unable to keep it perfectly. Look at verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. That's an important word that we're, a brief case that we're going to unpack in a second. The law has become our tutor to lead us to, and here's the remedy. Here's the one who lies at the center of our freedom, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified, made right with God, placed in right standing with him by faith. Paul here again uses some very interesting language to describe the the law. Through the use of a common day object lesson, a household cultural concept that would have been very familiar to anyone reading really this letter. And as he uses this object uh, lesson, this word picture, He's saying a great deal about the Jews' relationship to the law. He says that the law, the Mosaic Covenant, has become our guardian, our schoolmaster, our teacher, until Christ came. What does this mean? Let me go ahead and open the floor here. When you, when you hear of tutor to lead us to Christ, what in your mind comes to the forefront of your thinking? What is the role of that tutor? What, are, what is that individual supposed to do? Think about your own concept of a tutor. Teach. Excellent. Guidance. I missed it. What? Explain the things that I don't get. Okay, right? A child is usually assigned a tutor. Allow us to see the truth. Excellent. Anything else? Hmm? Correct you. Excellent. It would demand patience, yeah, typically to be a tutor. Yeah, many of you have kind of already connected to really the role and function of that, but it's, 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 it's got a weight and force in their context even beyond even what we know as a tutor and a schoolmaster. You see, in many Roman and Greek households, a a well-educated slave would be assigned or put in charge of the children of a family. And those slaves would take the children to and from school. They would watch over them during the day. Sometimes they would teach the children, right? Basic, basic knowledge, writing, arithmetic. In other c- cases, they would protect the children. Their, part of their role was to shield them from outside influences that would seek to do them harm and bring reproach against their family. And even in other cases, sometimes the tutor would discipline and punish the child if they misbehave. And these ideas of teaching and punishing and separating or setting apart was exactly what the law was designed to do. The tutor or schoolmaster was supposed to teach Israel about the coming of who? <laughs> the coming of the Messiah through, through who its ceremonies and sacrifices and all the laws were pointed, right? We've covered that in Hebrews. We covered it extensively in Colossians, that these were a shadow of things to come. The substance had not arrived. Who who is the substance? The substance was Christ. And all of those things were a shadow pointing to him. All of those things pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice and righteousness in the coming Christ. The tutor was supposed to punish the Israelites by revealing to them their sin, prescribing sanctions for those sins. And the tutor was supposed to set Israel apart. And Israel looked distinctively different than other nations, pagan nations that were around them, large measure because of the law. The tutor was supposed to set them apart, and indeed it did. This is what Paul meant by tutor, schoolmaster, or guardian. And so we have to resist the tendency of reading this through our own modern idea of schoolmaster or simply teacher. It's even more than just a teacher at a school, okay? This is much, much more. The Greek word here is that that which we get, the word pedagogy, right? Which literally means child conductor. I think, Tim, you said it, guides them. Someone who leads and guides a child in the way that they should go. 
And by using this illustration, Paul was communicating several things about the Jews and their law. Number one, he was saying that the Jews were not born under the law, but were brought up by the law. And there's a big difference, okay? Let me say that again. He's conveying that the Jews were not born under the law or through the law, but was brought up by it. Again, big, big difference. The slaver tutor, you know this in real life, is the slaver tutor, is that individual the, the child's father? No, he was the child's guardian, the child's disciplinarian. And so the law in the same way, the law did not ever give life to Israel. It simply regulated life. And that was very different than what the Judaizers were espousing. They were teaching that the law was necessary for life, for righteousness. Paul's argument is held out in chapter 3 to show them their error and to keep them from disturbing those within the Galatian church. Secondly, and even more importantly, the work of the guardian was preparation for the child's maturity. You know this in real life. Once a child comes of age... He's no longer in need of a guardian, is he? There's a moment in ancient Roman culture, Greek culture, that the child would reach an age where the tutor was no longer assigned to them. Once the child came of age, there was no longer a need for said tutor. And so the law, in the same way, was a preparation for the nation of Israel until what? Until the coming of the promised seed, Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal in God's program was always the coming of his son. That's why he says earlier, but before faith or before Christ came, the nation was imprisoned by the law. Yes, the law separated Israel from other pagan nations, and it did it successfully. And yes, it governed every aspect of their lives, but all of this throughout the centuries of Israel's history was in order to prepare them for the coming of Christ. Those demands of the law, which were weighty and heavy and insurmountable, reminded the people that they needed what? Not what, they needed who, right? They needed a savior. They needed someone to come and do for them what they could not do for themselves. All of the types and symbols in the law were pictures that the savior was coming, which is why you'll, you'll recall after his resurrection, Jesus finds two men walking on the road to Emmaus. And what does he begin to do? He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he begins explaining to them the things concerning himself from all of Scripture. All of this was pointing to me. All of this was a tutor to prepare you. And the tutor was supposed to operate until Christ came. To what end? That the people of God might be, verse 24, might be justified by faith. In other words, justification, that beautiful word that we love, that divine declaration whereby we are counted as righteous, does not come through law, not through the tutor, but through faith in Christ. Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law has performed its purpose the Savior has come and the tutor is no longer needed. We are no longer under its tutelage. And those who look to Christ by faith alone have been freed from the imprisonment or being shut up under sin of the schoolmaster. Just look at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God. That right there is probably the most powerful of lightning bolts that Paul delivers. Here is the height and climax of his argument, namely that if a person believes in Jesus Christ, then he is a son of God. And friends, pause there for a moment and think about what we talked about at the beginning. The designation of son of God, son of God is a staggering designation, is it not? When you hear that, what, what comes flooding over you in a worship-prompting way? You are a son of God. That is a question for you, not rhetorical. What's that? You guys want to arm wrestle? No, no? Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> heirs of the promise. Chosen heir. Okay, excellent. Heir, big word. We'll talk about that. Anything else? Righteousness. Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> relief. I love that. Practical outworking implication. Absolutely relief, right? This is powerful for the Jews here who the Judaizers were coming and really trying to disturb them, right? Especially Gentiles who had come to Christ. And for Jews specifically, they had historically thought of themselves as having, and rightfully so, a privileged status, right? After all, they're, they're God's chosen people. They're a nation that God called out of nothing, made, him, made them his own, brought glory to himself through them. You'll remember in Exodus 4.22, God tells Moses, hey, you go to Pharaoh. <laughs> and he says, literally, uh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, right? My firstborn. You tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Hosea 11.1, 1, God lamented over Israel, right? In real strong paternal terms. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son, which even alludes forward the book of Matthew, right? Jesus coming out of Egypt, escaping King Herod. What is Paul saying here? We have to feel how this would have rested in the ears of those in the early church. He's saying anyone, Jew or Gentile, who looks to Christ by faith is a son of God. And you could literally hear the gasps in the room. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who looks to Christ by faith is a son of God. He drives this point home even further in the close of this chapter, which leads us to the fourth statement that Paul provides to help us understand the relationship between law and promise. The law cannot change the promise. The law is not greater than the promise. The law is not contrary to the promise. And fourth and finally, the law cannot do what the promise can do. Verses 27 through 29. In the close of this chapter, Paul continues to explain the nature of and the role of the law. And in showing the nature of the law, he also makes the emphatic point about the nature of the people of God. Namely, that through the promise, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. When he does this, he makes the most stunning and breathtaking of all points, that those who are in Christ are sons both of Abraham and of God. Look at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Here are a few realities that the law could never accomplish. The law could reveal sin, and it did, to a certain extent, it can temporarily modify one's behavior, right? But the law could not do for the sinner what Jesus Christ can do, amen? For starters, you look at verse 27, the law could never justify the guilty sinner. Verse 27, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now that phrase there, clothed yourselves with Christ or put on Christ, refers to a change of, of what? Garments, right? Change of garments. The believer has laid aside the dirty garments of, of sin and by faith, that's the only pathway, received the robes of right, the righteousness of Christ. Now to the Galatians, this idea of changing clothes would, would have had an additional meaning. You see, when a Roman child came of age, you know, the very child who had spent their childhood under the work of the tutor, when a Roman child came of age, he would do something. He would take out his outer childhood garment and he would put on the adult toga, signifying to everyone that that person had come of age. He was no longer under a tutor. He was an adult citizen. This is the image that Paul's holding out to those who, this would have rested very clearly in a very pronounced way in their ears that the believer in Christ 
is not just a child of God, and he is that, right? Relief. (laughs) But even more specific, he or she is a son of God. Literally, an adult son with adult garments, with all the privileges of adult sonship has to offer him. That kind of status where God says, here, welcome, here is your inheritance, you are my son, and you will forever be. That's that's the spirit-led logic that Paul is answering these Judaizers, these anti-gospel, faith-disturbing individuals. By faith, you are a son. And just a pastoral word on this is my rabbit trail. Bible translations for a moment, right? Obviously, everyone for the last several dec- decades, everyone's well acquainted with the movement of feminism, right, and the heightened desire for political correctness. And in that environment, what are people doing with God's word? Wait, 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 wait. We can't translate this as sons of God. That's not inclusive enough. So let's water the word. Actually, change the word altogether. These, this, you're a child of God, and. and Here's the danger and the sadness behind that is because if you if you don't write this as this was written, you actually miss a good measure of the theological richness that is bound up in this word. It is written son of God for a reason. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It's You all have the designation of sonship, same inheritance. Remember, females, we're, we're, we're not given any part in that inheritance. They were really cast aside. It was a patriarchal system, right? Even women, this would have been radical in the minds of those who were listening. Even women were sons of God. And I say that to say, be be allergic to the tendency of our movement and the philosophy of man, right? Colossians chapter two, we don't live by that philosophy of men. Be allergic to their efforts to try to steer away and make politically correct in their own modernized mind and not faithfully translate God's word. It is a son of God for a reason that takes nothing away. If anything, that adds further richness to what is being conveyed. Here's the implication of this. If you have adult status before God, if you're considered a son of God, an adult son, The implication is, and here's what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia. Why would you ever go back to your childhood under the law? That's the logic. Why would you ever go back? Secondly, the law could never give a person a oneness with God. The law could never give a person oneness with God. Verse 28. You'll remember the law actually did quite the opposite, didn't it? It actually separated man from God. Why? It's because man is unable to keep the law. But in verse 27, Paul says that faith in Jesus literally baptizes us into Christ. This baptism of the Spirit, it identifies the believer with Christ. It makes us part of his body. We are immersed or placed into Christ, which is how and why we get his garments of righteousness in place of our own. You know this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, right? For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, again, profound, whether slaves are free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. This Sunday, in God's providence, we have Baptism Sunday. People will worship through the the waters of baptism. They will publicly testify of their faith, giving an outward expression of what is already taking place inwardly. That work of God's spirit can just look to Acts chapters 10 to see how that was made manifest. And in this same vein, Paul says in verse 28, that by faith we are all now one in Christ Jesus. What a tremendous claim that is, amen? We are all one. The law created differences, distinctions, not only between individuals and nations, but also between various kinds of food and animals. It's not the case now that Christ has come. This was glorious news to those who were Galatian Christians, Gentiles who had come to faith in the Messiah. In their society, slaves were considered to be only pieces of property. Women were kept confined and disrespected. Gentiles were often sneered by the Jews. The the Pharisee would literally wake up every morning and pray, God, I thank you that I'm a Jew, not a Gentile, that I'm a free man, not a slave. I thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. 
That's not the case in the gospel of grace. And this does not mean that their race or political status or their sex had changed at conversion, but it does mean that those things are absolutely of no, no value in our standing before God, of which we are thankful. These characteristics, they, they don't go away, but they, they also in no way handicap us when it comes to our spiritual relationship to God through Christ. It doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male or female. You're all one in Christ. The law perpetuated those distinctions, but God in his grace declared all men to be on the same level that he might have mercy on all men, right? Just fast forward or rewind in, this, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 to see that unpacked. The law could never justify the guilty sinner. The law could never give a person oneness with God. We're baptized with him. And third, the law could never make us heirs of God. The law could never make us heirs of God. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are of Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. One of the things we've seen clearly thus far and continue to see here is that this promise is one that embraces both Jews and Gentiles. And what the Judaizers were erroneously propagating in Acts 15.1, that, that poisonous anti-gospel falsehood that said Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved is now blown to pieces, right? Paul throws in a spirit-filled grenade into the room and blows that argument up in Galatians 3. God's promise that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed is a promise that embraces Jews and Gentiles. In other words... The gospel is not simply a blessing upon Abraham and the Jews, but upon Gentiles as well. You can just look at Peter's vision in the book of Acts, right? And it's a vision that even Peter starts to slip on and forget in Galatians chapter 2, of which Paul has to rebuke him for publicly. This promise is one that's always been at the center of God's program of bringing glory to himself by making a people for himself. And this is what the apostle is shouting from his spirit-inspired, authoritative, apostolic megaphone. Jew and Gentile alike are all one in Christ. God made the promise to Abraham's seed, verse 16. That seed is Christ. Here's the implication. Here's the spiritual implication of this. Here's the argument. If we are in Christ by faith then we too are Abraham's seed, spiritually speaking, right? This means we are heirs. Several of you mentioned we are heirs of the spiritual blessings God promised to Abraham. Now, that does not mean that the material and national blessings promised to Israel set aside. There are still promises to Israel that are unique to Israel and are still yet to be fulfilled and will in a day yet future of which God has already planned. Those things are not nullified. Those things are not voided. This simply means that Gentile Christians are today are enriched spiritually because of God's promise to Abraham. Indeed, all the nations of the earth have been blessed through him. All nations, not just Israel. And we as Gentiles say, what a relief. We too, this has always been God's plan. It's not an afterthought. We can be justified by God, by faith, through his grace just in the way Abraham was, right? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And friends, to be justified or to be made right with God, is that not the greatest blessing that you could ever be imparted? You could ever receive? Right standing, sonship, inheritance. Friends, I encourage you this morning, your Christian life ought to take on a new wonder and meaning as you realize all that you have in Christ, all of this is by his grace, that he would condescend to give to us. We are an adult son in God's family, an heir of God. I would ask you this morning, do you live in light of that inheritance? Are you drawing from that inheritance? Is your life one of just perpetual responding to the grace of God that's been lavished to you? If we ponder that question honestly enough, we would say, no, I've I don't do those things as I ought. I don't live in light of my inheritance on a consistent, perpetual basis. 
have moments when I, it's like I'm forgetful. I live in other ways. I live in very temporary ways, very earthly ways, very fleshly ways. And yet I'm a son. It's not tattooed on the forefront of my mind. I want to emblazon God. I don't want to forget it. I want everything about my life, the way that I work, the way that I'm a father, the way that I'm a husband, the way that I'm a brother in Christ to my church family. I want, I want it to be impacted that I'm a son of God. I, I'm, a, I'm a champion of his grace, and I'm to be a herald of his grace. This is Paul's theme, and it will be going forward in the back half of this book, right? Chapters 4 through 6 will talk about how we live in light of God's disinheritance we have. How do we respond to this grace? That's all of chapters 4 through 6. For you and I, as we kind of spend the last, last few minutes, through, like, what, Lord, what we, what, how do we live what we learn? What do we do with this? I'm just giving you a few things. Number one, I want to encourage you to combat the legalist within. Combat the legalist within. This is where Paul's message is still massively relevant today. Let me ask you this, this morning, um, when we say combat the legalist within, what, what are we talking about? What are ways that that legalist within show, rears its ugly head? It's not personal confession hour, although you can be honest and transparent. That's fine. I'm just saying, majoritively speaking, how does that show up? What's that? Judgment? Yeah, excellent. We'll go back to that. Judging others through a standard of our own making? Okay. Yeah, a pompous, self-righteous, smug, chest lifted the air. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like the tax collector. Right here and then over there. Righteousness? Prejudice. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Okay, good works. Just just trying to be a, a moralist by your own power, your own efforts, your own energy, for your own purposes, for the approval of man and not of God. Yeah. We, uh, we regularly need to hear about the nature of the law in our lives, right? And to what purpose it serves. And why is that the case? It's because all of us are good legalists at heart. We, it's got a magnetic pull on us to go back towards law, go back towards legalism. And from time to time, we think that our obedience somehow impresses God and causes him to look upon us with more favor, right? Um, I can't pray to God in the morning until I clean up the room, so to speak. How about you just come with a contrite heart and say, God, I am, I am a sinner. I'm just going to run to you with my sin. You are great and you are holy and you lavish mercy and it's available. I want to approach your throne with confidence. I don't come by any of my own standing. I come to you. But people are like, ah, I'm not spending time with the Lord. I, I just, I got to deal with my sin in order. God's saying, hello, you're my son. I'm here to help. I've already dealt with it anyway. We need to be reminded of this. Several of you mentioned prejudice and judging others. We do this too, this legalist within. We, we look down on someone who doesn't live exactly like we do. Right? We find ways to compare ourselves favorably to our neighbors so that we can think that we are better than we are. Right? Whether it be the clothes that we wear, cars that we drive, books that we read, music that we listen to, food that we eat, the way that we recreate to the way that we educate, right? And we find something to latch onto, and then we measure others in the church by our own standard rather than God's. Instead of saying, this, my family, they are all sons of God, righteous because of his work. The Judaizers had latched onto circumcision and demanded the Gentiles toe the line so that they could be saved. But for you and I, if we kind of bask in the message of grace that's bound up in the book of Galatians, what it's intended to do, if we recognize that our various activities don't make us holy, we're already made holy because of Christ. Well, then we're going to be able to appreciate and understand what Paul has said. We cannot offer anything of ourselves to improve our standing before the Lord. It's our union with Christ by faith is what makes us pleasing to him. When we get that, should that realization of our union with Christ, should that not impact or affect the relationships that exist within the body of Christ that is North Lake Bible Church? 
it dismantles prejudices. It refrains us from wanting to judge others. Fruit examining, right? Walking up to everyone's tree and seeing what kind of fruit is there. When we get justification right, what makes me right with God should radically alter how I see and interact with you and you with me. Secondly, a pastoral word regarding law and parenting. Law and parenting. Some of you have children. Some of you have already finished raising children. Maybe you have grandchildren. And you may ask, well, where is this? (laughs) Where on earth is Galatians 3 insightful for parenting? Just hear me out for a moment. Namely, here's the insight, is that we don't do it this way. And here's what I mean by this. Don't just be a law to your children. Don't just be a law to your children. If you simply put restraints on them and give them external guidelines and don't do anything for the inside of the child, their human nature from the moment of birth is already one of rebellion. So that here's the implication and here's the insight for you and I. There is a whole array of other things that have to be a part of parenting other than just law. And by all means, extend guidelines, have parameters, have rules in your home. But there are an array of other things that need to be attached and surrounding law, right? Prayer, worship, Bible reading, mercy, forgiveness, gospel, conversations. I'm sorry, I didn't do that right. Exhibiting to them what grace is. Law and grace. All the feeding into the heart of a child that's going to make them new, right? We don't make them new, but we're holding out that ministry of his word, that ministry of the gospel, day after day after day with the hope and the prayer that God would make this child new. We want them to embrace our guidelines, right? We want them to love them. Ultimately, we want them to embrace God, to love God. And an extension of that, the overflow of that, is that they're going to embrace your guidelines. We're pleading with God to save them. And we are pointing out to them God's grace at every every corner, every turn. This is what we want for our children. Don't just be a law to your children. Number three, hold fast to the promises of God. Hold fast to the promises of God. Let me ask, um, practically speaking, what does the antithesis to this look like? Antithesis being opposite. What does it look like when I don't hold fast? What's that? Anxiety and worry? Misery. Yes, Joe. More sin. Yeah, yeah. Propagates more. We spiral, spiral deeper in the well. What? Fear? Fear. I'm sorry. Okay, you're unstable. You're tossed to and fro. Ephesians 4, excellent, yeah. Self-reliance, excellent. Pull myself up by my bootstraps, sort of spirituality, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, by all means. But it is God who works in you, right? To work and will to his good pleasure. Cling and hold fast to the promises of God. Understanding the function the law has relative to our justification is a beautiful, beautiful, freeing thing. Through that understanding, we come to realize what? We come to realize that we are secure. We are his. We have an eternal status before God that is his son, not just child, but son, an adult son with all of the inheritance blessings that are attached to that. When you get that, what does that do? That begins to wash over you every day and it overwhelms you. It softens your heart. It deals with worry and anxiety, the wringing of hands that, that perhaps I'm not acceptable to God. That is, that is anti-gospel thinking. Now, I want to be very clear. In your, in your spiritual life, by all means, ask the Lord to reveal your sin, right? See if there be any offensive way within me, right? And lead me on the way of everlasting. Lord, show me these things. I want to be contrite and brokenhearted. I want to repent of these things. 
But I do that already knowing I, I, I want to do those things as a son, not because I am in a perilous place that I'm concerned that my eternal status is in jeopardy. There's a big difference with that, right? I am secure in Christ. And as his child, I want to take sin seriously. I want to be aggressive to dig out the root of sin in my life, any vestiges of sin in my life. I want to deal with that flesh, that unredeemed flesh that I'm warring with, spirit, flesh. I want to do that to his glory. But my eternal standing is not hanging in the balance. We could just ask, how does that, let me ask this. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing and we're going to worship around the waters of baptism. How does that realization of eternal security by God's grace, how should that impact, infect, and temper what we do even the next hour? Worship of gratitude. Excellent. Humility. Excellent. Joy. Relief. Awe. To be in awe. Hmm? Evangelism. I want others to know, right? I often just want to open these doors. We can't open. We can't keep the doors open, okay? But I want to. So the neighbor here hears. Yes. Freedom. Yeah. That energizes us to sing, right? Energizes us to bless others. We're going to have, we're going to take turns uh, of the, the reality of God's grace is just uber fresh in a brother's mind next to me. And I'm, maybe I'm just, I'm kind of flat. I'm, my emotions are shot. I'm beat down by the cares of life. I'm discouraged and I got an enemy that's lying to me. And yet I got a brother that's just in the midst of soaring. God uses him as an instrument. Hey man, let me draw you back to the grace of God. Isn't it sweet? That's a good ministry to have. Let's do that with each other even the next hour. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and for the book of Galatians. We, many have just even referenced, it's not a book that we've often spent a lot of time in. We thank you for the, the process of dealing with Galatians 3 and the logic that's there. And all of that's intended, us, intended for us to, to highlight the beauty and grandeur and power of your grace in our lives and just our need for it. Uh, it it's there and intended to dismantle our tendencies towards legalism. And Lord, we, we but scratch the surface of which, surface of which those, that tendency comes to the forefront. I ask in the, the coming days that you would make us sensitive to these things. We, we don't want to become antinomians, right? We're, we're, we're anti, anti-law and we're just, we kind of use the, use the grace of God as a license for sin. Lord, keep us from that equals sin and tragedy. At the same time, Lord, we don't want to shift back towards the legalistic tendencies of the Judaizers. We don't want our faith disturbed. We want to rest in the security that you have wrought through the finished, sufficient work of your son. We've spent the book of Colossians and now even Hebrews looking at your superiority, your sufficiency, and all of its implications on our life. We ask that you continue to grow us in understanding of these things, anchor us in them, and give us grace that we might hold fast to them when the enemy tries to lie within. Lord, we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.